Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us for episode 421 with Kevin Cruz. Kevin has got some contrarian pointers for leaders, so you'll learn one, arguments for closing your open door policy, two, why to set guardrails instead of rules, and three, how to be likable without striving for being liked. If you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, or the links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F421. Now here's Kevin Sorry. Kevin Cruz is the founder and CEO of LeadX, the first and only AI-powered executive coach and leadership success platform built with IBM Watson. A successful entrepreneur, Kevin has won both Inc. 500 awards for fast growth and Best Place to Work awards for employee culture. He was previously the founder or co-founder of several companies with successful exits. Kevin is also a Forbes contributor and a New York Times bestselling author of nine books, including Employee Engagement 2.0, Employee Engagement for Everyone, and We, How to Increase Performance and Profit Through Full Engagement. Kevin's next book, Great Leaders Have No Rules, Contrarian Leadership Principles to Transform Your Team and Business from Crown Publishing, launched mere days ago. So thanks to Kevin for sharing his time with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. It's a trying time that challenges all of our basic assumptions. However, one thing that brings us all together is our common humanity. Now more than ever, teams must come together and work together to solve big challenges. And Trello is here to help. Trello Part of Atlassian's collaborative suite is an app with an easy-to-understand visual format plus tons of features that make working with your team functional and just plain fun. Teams of all shapes and sizes and companies like Google, Fender, and even Costco all use Trello to collaborate and get work done. With Trello, you can work with your team wherever you are, whether it's at home or in an office. No matter what device you're using, computer, tablet, or phone, Trello syncs across all of them so you can stay up to date on all the things your team cares about. Keep your workflow going from wherever you are with Trello. Try Trello for free and learn more at Trello.com. That's T-R-E-L-L-O dot com. Trello.com. Here is Kevin. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Well, I don't know if I'm going to be able to be awesome level, but I'm going to do my best, and it's an honor to uh, meet you and finally here live. Oh, oh, thanks, Kevin. Well, yeah, it's funny. We were talking before we hit record about how we've seen each other's logos and faces <laughs> in all kinds right. of places, and, and here we are <laughs> talking live at last. I like that phrase you said. It could be a song, you know, logos and faces in all kinds of places. Oh, there you oh go. yeah. It seems like it has to be country and with a slow... <laughs> Slow tempo. Well, you do a lot of things at the opposite of a slow tempo in terms of founding companies and uh, having great exits. And I want to hear about your company, LeadX. And in particular, you have the first and only AI, as in like artificial intelligence, robot style, powered executive coach. How does that work? (laughs) Yeah, well, thanks for asking on that. My mission is to spark a hundred million leaders in the next 10 years. And that's a big number. And certainly I can reach some with a podcast, with a book, with speeches or those kinds of things, you know, writing, but not that many. And so when I saw what AI was able to do now, especially in the area of like mental health and therapy and coaching, I said, well, hey, leadership is about behavior change, changing thoughts and identity to change behaviors. Let's apply it. So 
for two years, we've been training IBM Watson in all kinds of topics related to how to be a great boss, how to be a great manager, how to be a great leader. We call her Coach Amanda. So we released Coach Amanda in November of last year. And basically, you download the app on your Android device or smartphone or you log in. And Coach Amanda will teach you about management fundamentals, but she diagnoses your personality. She knows your personality. So she's teaching you management principles, leadership principles, but tailored to your personality. And then there's sort of a, a new mode we just released. And you can ask her questions like, how do I handle an employee who smells badly or comes in late? Or how do I communicate with a Myers-Briggs INTJ? You, know, you can ask her all kinds of questions. And then the new mode, which is really cool, it's like what a human coach does, is Coach Amanda will help you to pick a developmental goal and a deadline like 12 weeks from now. She'll help you to create an, an action plan. And every week she'll check in with you and she'll buzz you on your phone or send you an email that says, hey, uh, Pete, you know, your friendly reminder, your goal is, I'm just making this up, you know, to become a better public speaker by this date, your next activity is watch some TED Talks. Did you do it or not? And if you say you did, then she's going to ask you to like jot some lessons learned from that activity. If you say you didn't, she's going to ask you to jot some notes like, well, what got in your way? She'll scold you. <laughs> yeah, well, like what got in the way of you getting to that? Why have you been so naughty? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Shut the power off on the spaceship if you don't behave. <laughs> and that goes in a coaching journal. So she becomes like your accountability partner who also can give you resources. Like you're all about action, like things to do at work. She will give you every week like a new activity to do, you know, at work to get better in your goal area. That's so wild. And I guess I, I wonder about these things in terms of like just how wide a breadth of questions, breadth, what's the T? Yeah. The D. <laughs> a question can I ask? Because I know like Siri, you know, there's something she can nail. Like, hey, right. Siri, wake me up at 6 a.m. She's all over <laughs> it. But right. uh, yeah, other questions are a little trickier for, for Siri. So like if I were to ask Amanda, uh, something like, boy, let's see. How do I? Okay, let's just say, Amanda, I'm trying to figure out which business initiatives should be my top priority right now. Like, could she handle that? What happens? So, no, she can't is the short question. So, but you're raising a really important issue with all these devices and these chatbots. And the best chatbots out there, Siri, Alexa, Google Home, they're at an 85% accuracy level. So out of everything that they get asked in any given day, they can get about 85% of that. So that's where it's sort of maxed out for now. Now, for Coach Amanda, when we first released her two years ago, she could get 11%. And then all the wrong answers, you, get, you feed it back in, she gets smarter. She was then at 44%. Right now, she's at about 65%. And we think that we'll get to 85% by the end of the year. You need, in general, about 10,000 unique questions for the bot to then kind of know 85% or better. But the thing is, it's in a given area. So if we saw that you had asked that question of Coach Amanda, we would say, okay, she's teaching people to be better leaders. Is this a leadership question? And we, we might say, eh, evaluating what business to do isn't our definition of like management leadership. And she's just going to say, I don't know. Would you like to hear what kind of things I know about? We talk about training the AI to, to understand humans. 
the other half is to train humans how to speak to the AI. And like, I've got, you know, an Alexa device. And I noticed a while ago, a few weeks back, you know, it was the ring was glowing orange. And I didn't know what that was at the time. So I said, like, hey, Alexa, why are you glowing orange? She's like, I can't help you with that. I'm like, mm-hmm. what does the orange light mean? I can't help you with that. I had to Google it. And it said, oh, that's when you have like a notification from Alexa. So then I said, hey, play me my notifications. And it told me like, oh, UPS is going to deliver a package today. But then if I say, and you'd think it would know this, if I say, Alexa, play me my messages, play me my alerts. Why are you orange? Do I have a package? She cannot answer any of these very similar things. So Alexa trained me. Now when she's orange, I say, play my notifications, and then I'll get it. But it took me a couple of days before I got that. And so that's like with Coach Amanda. I mean, most people just don't wake up and say, I've got a question about management today. But if you're a manager at a company that's used, let's say the DISC personality survey, it's kind of a popular personality survey, and you know everybody's done that, and you know that your boss is high in D, which is like dominance or driver, well, you would then know that you could ask Coach Amanda before your next meeting, like, hey, how do I persuade someone who's high in D? And then Coach Amanda would answer it. But you wouldn't just naturally think of that kind of question on your own. So sort of a two-way learning. Understood. Okay, well, well, thank you. My curiosity (laughs) is satisfied. And now I'm curious about your book, Great Leaders Have No Rules. What's the big idea here? Well, the big idea is that most of the conventional wisdom around management is wrong. I've now had 30 years of being a serial entrepreneur, and I crashed and burned my first companies because I had no concept of leadership. And then my next couple of companies, they did okay, but it's because I had outdated ideas of leadership. Better than no ideas, but they were outdated. And it was only when I really rejected the conventional wisdom, thought about how to make things work better from a management leadership perspective for the modern world, that's when the last couple of companies have really, you know, taken off and done well. Intriguing. Well, so could you give us an example of an outdated rule or principle or approach to management that is still a a common practice that that ought to be rejected? Yeah, well, let me do the one. I mean, it's the uh, the first chapter, you know, which is uh, close your open door policy. And most people, I've made that as chapter number one, because most people have heard that idea of having an open door policy. And of course, this day and age, Pete, it's not, we don't all have physical doors. It might be we're in that open office environment. Someone taps us on the shoulder to ask a question or even working alone, but someone messages us on Slack and kind of, it's some digital form of got a minute mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's never just a minute. And now, of course, with all these management things, they come from a good place. And so the idea of the open door policy is, you know, it facilitates communication, it's fast problem solving, it's a flat organization, everybody can leapfrog each other's bosses and go right to the top. All sounds good. But in this modern day world, there's a lot of problems. First problem, of course, is as the manager who's getting interrupted all day, it's almost impossible for us to do deep work, to do focused work, to think strategically. But Marshall Goldsmith writes about, it's also a problem for the person coming through the door for a couple of reasons, because if someone's coming in with unscheduled meetings all day, you got to ask yourself, did you hire the wrong person? Did you not train them well? Or do you have a culture that is not supportive? It's not a culture of psychological safety. Are they so scared to make a decision to solve a problem on their own 
that they've got to run everything by you. Like maybe you've got a delegation problem or a, a perfectionism problem. So it's a sign that maybe things aren't well from, from their standpoint. And some of, uh, I put a lot of comments from readers in the book. And, you know, as one person pointed out, they're like, I don't want to talk to my boss if I'm interrupting her and it's a bad time and she's stressed out or whatever. I'd rather it be, hey, let's schedule 15 minutes or 30 minutes. Here's the topic so you know in advance what it's about. And so I don't say like close your door completely. The idea is, you know, I say close your door, open your calendar, meaning set office hours and to each their own. I mean, for some people, it might be like, hey, in the morning, if my door is closed, that's my deep focused work time. And I invite you to focus on your work as well. But in the afternoon, if my door's open or, or not, just tap and come on in because my office hours will be in the afternoon. Or maybe it's, hey, you know what? Monday and Friday are open door policy days. And in the middle of the week, it's all about making stuff, you know, and we're not going to do the open door. So you can figure it out. But the idea is like, hmm, if it's getting abused, there's something wrong going on. So how can you set some ground rules and then support your team members in a way where they don't have to come through as often? I'm digging that a lot. And when you talked about, you know, making stuff versus, you know, managing, I think that came from the lean startup world somewhere, the makers versus managers schedule. And I thought it's really resonated with me in terms of, you know what, there are some days where that's, that's all I need to do is I need to coordinate with a bunch of different people and a bunch of different little things and uh, make sure everyone is, you know, equipped and powered, you know, informed, guided, you know, raring to go and, and rock and roll. And there are other days where I need to enter like deep isolation and creatively give birth to things. That's right. And having like one, two, three minute interruptions just like disrupts everything in terms of yeah. I was having a brilliant idea or so it felt brilliant at least. <laughs> and I was <laughs> in the throes of writing it up. And now where did it go? I don't even know anymore because I, I replied to a message along the way. Yeah, that's right. That's intriguing. And so you say that you are making some boundaries, if you will, associated with, hey, these times are open office hours. These times are not so much. That almost sounds like a rule. <laughs> you say great leaders have no rules. How are you thinking about the term rule here? Let me say like the time where rules make sense is if it's a law, you know, you, your company has to have a rule that follows the law. Or uh, if it's a safety issue, you don't want people working on railroad tracks, you know, wearing headphones or something like that. And if you're really horrible at hiring, if you've hired a, a bunch of knuckleheads, rules might contain them a little bit. But the problem with rules that aren't the kind of required rules is that every time I bump into a rule, it takes away the chance for me to make a decision, for me to make a choice. And when that happens, it becomes more your company than my company. Rules get in the way of conversation, rules get in the way of contemplation, and they disengage workers. And Pete, I'll tell you, like, so I stumbled on this 20 years ago, and it's a story I tell in the book where I had sold my company. I was 30 years old, and as part of the deal, they acquired my company. I was going to become a partner, vice president, report to the CEO. He gave me a big speech about, he's not my boss. We're just partners. We're going to build the dream together and one vote, all each one vote, all this stuff. I'm inspired. Inspired. <laughs> feel good. I'm engaged. It feels like my company. And then <laughs> 30 days in, I had sent my first expense report in. The check comes back and I happen to notice that it's short like $4, which is not a lot of money, but I thought maybe I filled it out wrong or something. So I emailed our CFO, hey, Don, it's not a big deal, but did I fill out the form wrong? And he says, no, we don't reimburse for post-it notes. I emailed back, 
Why? He emailed back. <laughs> Wasteful expense. And a buddy of mine who had come into the company the same way, vice president, partner, all this stuff, he told me that he was shorted $3 because while he was traveling on business, he had ordered a beer with dinner and they don't reimburse for beer. And they said, look, you could have ordered a $6 milkshake and we would have paid for it, but we won't pay for a $3 beer. So this became what was known as the post-it note wars. And you can imagine, like I was feeling so good. And then 30 days in, when I'm told I'm not allowed, the rule is no purchases of post-it notes. And that's it. It was like wasteful expense, black and white. It's a rule. How engaged did I feel? Did it feel like my company or their company? Did I feel like a VP or did I feel like someone with no power at all, right? And then here's the funny thing about it though, Pete. Like the second half of the story is I went and fought with the CEO. And he said, Kevin, he said, I had no idea that this was bothering people. He says, I don't care about post-it notes. All right, that rule is overturned. You win. Everybody can go buy post-it notes. But he said, let me explain. And he said, I don't care about post-it notes. I care about being frugal. And he said, one of our values, and it was an official company value, was growth and profits. And it wasn't the mission to be profitable, but it was like, hey, it's like the air you breathe. You know, you need it to go chase your mission. And he said that he used to walk through the office and see that everyone was buying post-it notes and they were doodling on them while they were on the phone or in a meeting. They were writing phone messages on them when they could have used any other kind of paper. And he shows me this stack of ripped up squares of paper. And he said, instead of post-it notes, he uses all like the scrap paper from the printer and stuff, rips it, you know, twice. So now he's got the, these squares on his desk that he uses. And he says, it's a symbol. He said, the no post-it notes is a symbol of frugality. It's a reminder about the culture and the value of being frugal, that profits matter and we care about it. So the funny thing is, even though he overrode that rule, I never again bought post-it notes. And it's because now we had a conversation, we had a relationship. It, I understood, okay, the value of the organization is, is frugality and, and profits. The acceptable norm is rip up little pieces of paper and use those. Don't be wasteful with post-it notes and other kinds of things. And so I totally changed my view on it, even though I then had permission to do it. I wanted to support our values. I wanted to represent our values. Now that I realized it was a symbol, I wanted to have little pieces of ripped up paper on my desk so the, you know, the, the team members would realize I'm being frugal. But None of that would have happened if it had just been the rule. And so now this is where I get in a lot of trouble. If, if people already think it's crazy, like I've had several companies over the last 30 years. We've never had a dress code. We've never had a vacation policy. The employee handbook is always a page and a half long of the required legal stuff. And you do get people making mistakes, the people that will travel and order eight beers instead of one. <laughs> but to me, that's a time for some feedback. That's a coachable moment. And sometimes you got to coach people out of the organization. But all of a sudden, you're not having people bump into a rule and them feeling disempowered, disengaged. It's, oh, I did something that's out of line with the agreed upon principles, the agreed upon values of our family. I get it. And I'm going to you know, be more likely than to conform. And I think this goes in all areas of our life. Like people have rules in their marriages that I hear about all the time. I don't think we should have rules in marriage. And again, I'm saying a rule is like that black and white thing that's been imposed on you rather than something you've thought about, 
and are deciding to do based on values. I don't think we should have rules for our teenagers. Like I saw me and my sisters had curfews uh, growing up and it was a disaster. It wrecked the family dynamic. So I've got three teenagers. I've never had a curfew and I might just be lucky. They're like model kids and everything. But it's not that I've ignored the issue of what time you're coming home. But instead of saying, the rule is 11 p.m. And at 11.02, we're now shouting at each other and they're grounded. It's more like, hey, when are you going to come home tonight? And they say, well, I've got this really big party and it's kind of far away. And I said, well, you know, I love you so much. I am not going to be able to sleep until you're home. And I have to get up early to take your brother to his basketball game. So what time are we thinking? And it's a whole nother thing that builds relationships, builds culture, and increases compliance. Like people can get around rules really easy, but if they're bought in, they're less likely to abuse it. And then whether they get home at 1055 or 1105, who cares? That is interesting because you're right now, it's sort of like your teenager is on your side. It's like he is helping you and the family out by getting home on time as opposed to, and, and maybe even a little early. Yes, right. He's helping you out even more because you're able to get some sleep extra versus when it's just a rule, it's like, well, I'm going to try and you know get every last second <laughs> yeah. out, out of it exactly. because, because I can and I don't feel engaged or bought in or, or I come on the team. So that's very intriguing how you say rules disengage workers because it deprives them of an opportunity to make a decision, to have some free agency. And it was so interesting as you were talking about the post-it note story and I heard that, you know, hey, frugality is, is a value here. I guess my thought is when it comes to values is like, well, the value I find much more empoweringly resonant is that we have <laughs> rock star employees and we give them the very best tools they need to to do their work with excellence. You know, it's yes, like, well, <laughs> so by golly, Kevin, you get the most fantastic post-it notes that you can conceive of if they make you feel Two percent more creative, engaged, empowered, supported. I want you to have the world's finest post-it notes. You know, that's that's kind of what what gets me more fired up in terms of of value. But uh, you and I think alike. I mean, and, and right, it becomes a discussion, a really important one around value. <laughs> mm -hmm. But at yep, the same time, when you see that what it means, it's like, oh, okay, and you can support that. And especially, I suppose, at the at a higher level of VP, you're like, well, yeah, profit is important, and and yeah, you know, waste is not cool. So I could get excited about that, and I do. And Pete, not to go too deep, just on that one chapter of having no rules, but here's the thing: like, instead of rules, think of guardrails. Because I'm sure if there's any chief financial officers out there, they're like, oh, everyone's going to be wasting on their travel budget or whatever. Well, fine, but instead of having a rule that people are going to bump into and circumvent or do stupid things to try to comply with the rule, give guardrails. It's like, hey, when you're traveling, a hundred bucks-ish a night on a hotel is going to be normal and fine. And if you're in a major city, that might be 200. And if you're in the Midwest in, in a rural town, maybe 60. But like, spend the money like it's your own. And I just gave you some milestones for not staying at the Ritz-Carlton, you know, kind of a thing. Guardrails are okay. It's like, okay, I've still got some of that. I like what you said, like some free agency, some decision-making, some choice. Do I stay at this hotel or that hotel? Because otherwise, the other thing is people will do the wrong thing to stay in the rule. They'll say, well, I can't stay at the hotel that's right next to the client office because it's 
$10 too much over the rule. So I'll stay farther away to save the $10, but now I'll spend $100 on a rental car, you know? And they just ended up wasting the expense to stay inside your hotel rule. And the time. It's like if I've got to truck it out another, you know, 20, 30 minutes each way. No matter what that rule is, like that's the thing. They can circumvent it on purpose or just do more harm by trying to stay in it. That's why they're so imperfect. Yes. Yeah, that's nice. So replacing the rules with guardrails and value. And, you know, it's so funny. It, I guess no one ever told me at the when I was an employee to spend the money like it was <laughs> my <laughs> own because I was super frugal, you know, yeah. and um, they would have benefited. But I was like, well, hey, I would never pay for a $280 uh, a night uh, hotel if it were my money. But apparently none of you mind. <laughs> No, I'm, I'm going to do that. Well, that's exactly right. As soon as you tell people they have a, whatever it is, $50 a day meal budget when they travel, all the expense reports come back at, you know, $49 and 79 cents. You know, everybody is like spending up to the rule because they think, well, that's like free money. That That's fine. It's let's get that second beer or let's get the, the appetizer. If you just say like, hey, here's kind of the normal spending patterns. Please spend our money as if it were your own people, you'll save money that way. Yeah, absolutely. And move faster. You know, I had Gary on my team just the other day, you know, we're doing software development. He's like, Hey, listen, I need like a backup Android phone to test the block. I'm like, Gary, just go buy. He's like, but I don't know which phone to buy. I'm like, spend the money as if it's your own and boom, conversation's done. He's empowered and we're all good. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, hey, while we're on that note, so instead of issuing rules, you you have a, a guiding principle there. Spend the money as if it's your own. And that's just a great sentence that uh, could offer a lot of clarity and empowerment. Uh, you got some more? I don't know if I've got them as pithy as that, but I mean, the thing on the rules is kind of overreaching. That's a big one. But that's just one example of the many different kind of accepted management things, you know, here, here's the rule book, here's the employee handbook and all that. We talked about open door, you know, it's time to close the open door. Another one that is uh, resonating with a lot of people is this idea of being likable, but not liked. Now, people mm -hmm. don't view that as normal management wisdom, but often we have this need as a, especially the younger managers, this was my big fault early on, is that we have this kind of need to be liked and so we're the popular boss, the nice boss, people like us. But if it's, it's okay to like to be liked, like, well, it's nice, it feels good to be like, but if you have that need, that is going to get in the way of you making tough decisions, making tough decisions quickly, giving people feedback that they need to grow and prosper. If I need Pete to like me and I'm your boss, it's going to slow me down from giving you the hard feedback that will make you better. And the reality is, Pete, you probably don't need me as a friend. You need me as a leader. You need me as a coach. And so, you know, this is one of those things where the more current wisdom is like, hey, you know, flat organizations and we're all equal and all that kind of stuff. I used to tell people that like when I would say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not your boss. I just have a different role on the team. You know, oh, that sounds nice. Well, until I've got to either lay people off, give them tough feedback promote someone out of the three people that are qualified. Well, now they know that I'm not just, you know, a friend and all the rest. So, I mean, that's just sort of a, another one that's been resonating with people is like, don't be a jerk. You want to be likable, but don't necessarily be like, you want to not be attached to the outcome of whether you're actually liked or not. Yeah. 
I think that's great. But if you need to be liked, I think it's great to make sure you've got some people outside of work who like you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's you've right. got that need being fulfilled successfully and you can you can do what you need to do inside there. So then when you say being likable, you're just sort of talking about just general, like friendly and respectful ways of being or, or do you have any particulars there? Well, yeah, I mean, it definitely starts with that. I mean, there's no need to, um, again, and I think I've got another chapter that, that talks about lead with love. So the old school wisdom would be purposely put up barriers between you and your team members. You don't eat lunch with them. You don't socialize with them. You don't talk about your personal life because you must remain objective and you must remain fair and you don't want your emotions to interfere. Well, that's too much in the wrong direction. One of the biggest ways that people will feel engaged at work. So engagement is just how we feel, you know, how committed we are to our organization and its goals. And 70% of this engagement, how we feel about work, comes from who our boss is. If we think our boss cares about us as individuals, as opposed to cogs in a machine, our engagement goes way up. So it's okay to get close to your people. It's okay for me to, to ask about your weekend, to know the names of your children and what they're up to, to know that you're training for a marathon or something, even to know when you're, you're struggling at home or you've got a parent who's ill. You don't want to put up these artificial barriers and it can be down to these little things where you're walking through the hallway of your organization. Are you going to keep your head up, make eye contact with everybody, smile and say good morning? Or are you going to keep your eyes down and hope nobody stops you because you really don't care? You just want to get back to your desk and get some work done. So it's like be likable, be sociable. Don't put up these artificial barriers. And remember, when I say lead with love, you don't have to like someone to love them. And that sounds a little weird. And it's weird to talk about loving your team members in this whole like Me Too era. Like I'm not talking about inappropriate love or anything like that. I'm talking about this greater love and compassion for fellow man and, and woman, right? It's about this higher level. The Greeks had a word for it called agape love. It's, it's like this universal love that you see in all the major religions. If I am going to serve my team members, if I'm going to lead my, my team members, even if I don't like somebody, I can still hope for the best. I can still care about them. I can still realize if I had lived their life, maybe I would be just like them, you know? And so that's where it gets into it. It's don't be a jerk is a good starting point. And then actually connecting care with your people is how you really activate that. I'm right with you there. So, so loving in terms of willing the good of the other, as opposed to liking, just like, hey, I enjoy your presence and, mm -hmm. and want to hang out more because it's fun. Right. So nice distinction there. I'd love to get your take when you talked about the manager or leader w walking around and, and holding the head up. I want to get your input on a couple of guests have cited this Harvard Business Review study about how most, the majority of managers are uncomfortable talking with their colleagues for any reason. And, and I just think that is just so striking. And so what's your take on, on what's behind this? Well, I'm not familiar with that particular study, but similar ones I have come across. And there's a couple of things that uh, are going on. And, you know, Pete, just recently, in the last like year or two with this AI coach that we've been working on, we've been going deep into personality theory. You know, personality is the number one driver of behavior, and we're talking about leadership behaviors. And the interesting thing is, is especially in large organizations, people, you know, managers are supposed to be focusing on like results, business results, but also relationships. You know, how do you attract and retain great talent? But that relationship part generally 
falls to the side. It's, you know, people are profits. People chase the profits. So these managers get promoted for getting things done, things, tasks. And the more task focused they are, the more they get promoted. So once you get up to a certain level, you're really good at the productivity stuff at tasks. You're not so good at the people stuff. And I think that it doesn't help when the traditional wisdom is that that is okay, that it's like, hey, don't get close to your people. And so that's where I think people start to get uncomfortable. This day and age, we know that, again, you know, trust drives engagement. What drives trust? Authenticity. If Pete comes out and says, hey, you know what, team? Here's what I'm really good at, and here's where I'm not really good at. And I'm going to tell you when I've got the answer, ask me anything. And if I don't know, I'll just tell you I don't know, and I'm going to go find out. And by the way, here's the three things I did wrong last year. Well, when we hear that from Pete, all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, Pete's like a relatable person, and he's not going to lie to us. He's not lying to us. And if I mess up, I can go to him and let him know. If I want to try something, it's not like, oh, this experiment goes wrong and I've, I've derailed my career. It's, oh, we were innovative. It didn't work out. Now we're going to try something else. And so the old school was not taught, you know, like I had mentors tell me when I was in my 20s, Kevin, leadership is acting. Kevin, wear your leadership mask when you arrive in the office. Like people would talk about that. And I, thankfully, I think that's changing. But when you've been drilled into that and you're task focused anyway, you're not going to be too comfortable talking to people at work. Oh, yeah, that's powerful. Thank you. Well, Kevin, tell me anything else you really want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. No, again, I just, you can hear in my voice and I can hear it in yours, Be like I geek out on leadership. Like this is a leadership book, but to me, leadership is a superpower because leadership just means influence. So when you learn to lead yourself, influence yourself, you can get to health, wealth, happiness. You know, when you learn to lead, influence your marriage, your children, you have a great family life. When you learn to lead, to influence at work, your career takes off. And so that's why I'm so geeked out about it. And, I, and thanks for the opportunity to, to really have some fun with some of these concepts. Oh, sure thing. Absolutely. Good times. Well, now can you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Well, I like uh, life is about making an impact, not an income. Lovely. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? I don't know if it's a favorite, but one that stood out from one of my earlier books was the study they did at Princeton showing that taking notes by hand is far superior than writing them on a laptop keyboard or a smartphone. It's called The Pen is Mightier Than the Keyboard. That's the name of that study. And it's because when we can type, then we tend to just be an automatic recorder of the words, of the sounds, without processing it. When we have to write them, we have to think about what we're hearing, quickly analyze it, shorten it, put it down, and then it anchors it in our memory. You know, that makes a lot of sense. I always prefer to use typing for notes just because I can type so much faster than that I could write with a pen. But right, that's right. kind of the idea, is because you can write slower, you must do some prioritization. That's right. And capture fewer words. And that process is powerful. Okay, thank you. That's helpful. It's all connecting for me over <laughs> here. <laughs> and how about a favorite book? I'm a huge reader, probably read you know more than 50 books a year. A classic favorite is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Yes, it's a great one. And well, since you're reading so much, let's ask, how about a favorite book or two released in the last five years? Yeah, uh, Daring Greatly from Brene Brown really gets, again, you don't think of it as a classic business or leadership book, but that helped me to understand issues related to 
self-worth, external validation, which gets you then to being more authentic. Very practical book from Kim Scott is Radical Candor, How to Give Feedback. Zero to One is an entrepreneur book about, you know, uh, startups and positioning. I mean, uh, Peter Thiel. So those are more recent ones. Lovely. Thank you. And how about a favorite tool? Something that helps you be awesome at your job. Yeah, I don't have anything novel or unique. I mean, I, I'm i a live from my calendar guy. I just use Google Calendar. Uh, again, I like writing notes by hand. Sometimes I will then transfer them into Evernote. So I use a, a Moleskine notebook or some kind of paper notebook, but just classic tools. Well, now I've got to ask, when you are taking notes by hand and mm-hmm. then give them into Evernote, are you just taking a photo or using a scanner? How do you make that happen smoothly? Yeah. So, I mean, they have, of course, tools now, including notebooks, where you write in the notebook and it automatically goes into Evernote. And then there's ones where it's special paper, you write on it, and then it scans and it does the OCR into Evernote. I don't do anything that fancy. What I tend to do is I write notes through, I fill up these books fast. And so a lot of it is not worthy of (laughs) sending to Evernote. (laughs) But if something's worthy of sending to Evernote, I'll just snap it on my phone, upload it as a photo, you know, to the to Evernote, and then I'll just write a couple of words that I know will match if I'm looking to do a search. So it's just sort of a poor man's version of getting it into Evernote. Oh, sure. Yeah. And how about a favorite habit? Something that helps you be awesome at your job. It's great you ask everybody this question. This starts before I get to work, but every morning I start, I have a big believer in having an attitude of gratitude. So I always just try to think of three things that I'm grateful for. Every morning I try to think of something different, just changes my mindset in an abundance mindset, puts me in a de-stresses me, maximizes my worldview going into work. And then at work, the first thing I do, highly recommend it, is I just consciously think of what is my most important task for the day at hand, and I'll scrawl it on top of my uh, printed calendar for the day, again, by hand, just to kind of anchor it there. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? Well, the one that is the most controversial is, you know, I wrote a book called 15 Secrets Successful People Know About Time Management. And one of the things I found, it wasn't my idea. You know, I interviewed 300 highly successful people, self-made billionaires, millionaires, and none of them used a to-do list. They only work from their calendar. And the phrase is, schedule it, don't list it. If you really want to do something, pause and think what day, what time, and for how long are you going to do it? And if if you're not willing to do that, then maybe you shouldn't plan to do it. And so I changed my world. I mean, that was a couple of years ago, and I don't use a to-do list anymore. And that's every day I get 10 emails telling me I'm a stupid, crazy jerk for telling people that. And I get 10 emails from people who say I've changed their life because they learned it. Fascinating. Yeah. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? The book, Great Leaders Have No Rules, available on Amazon.com, all bookstores, wherever they want to buy that. If they want to get a free trial and check out LeadX with Coach Amanda, that's at leadx.org, O-R-G. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Well, in the theme of the book, I would say challenge the rules. Even if you believe you should have rules, challenge them. You know, Make sure you are asking the team members that you're working with, the higher-ups, quote-unquote, what is behind this rule? Again, when, once I asked about the post-note rule, my view of it changed. And I would invite you to do the same thing outside of work. Even if you say, Kevin's crazy, like my teenagers need a curfew. Okay, but ask your kids, why do they think that curfew's in place? Why is it the time that it is? How do they feel about it? And at the very least, even if you keep the curfew, you will have strengthened that relationship and strengthened their commitment to compliance. 
Mm-hmm. Kevin, this has been a blast. Thanks so much for sharing the good word. Good luck with your book and, and all your adventures. Thanks, Pete. And thanks for you doing your work and spreading the word out there too. You're helping a lot of people. I really appreciate Kevin's wisdom there and I really appreciate our sponsors. Check them out. Kevin's turn of phrase there, rules disengage workers, really got me thinking. And I think there's some real truth to it in terms of you're less engaged kind of by design. You don't have to be. The rule has already made the decision for you. So rather than you really pouring your your heart and soul and values and thought process and, and cognitive energy towards making a decision, the rule has made the decision for you. So by definition, you are less engaged because it's not required for you to be as engaged to arrive at that decision. And so maybe there's some efficiencies to be gained under certain circumstances, but there's a real cost. So so Kevin's really got me thinking about when and where and how is it appropriate to, to set rules? Never in very particular, unique, limited circumstances, or more so is it all about offering that the key principle and the guardrail and that can give you the best of both worlds in terms of getting decisions and outcomes that you want while also getting the engagement. Good food for thought. Thank you, Kevin. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep421. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. If you do, you'll catch our next guest. It is Carly Fiorina. You may remember her. She ran for president one time. Well, she has got some pro tips when it comes to problem solving and leadership. So hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.